As an accredited certification body, BSI Assurance cannot offer certification to clients where they have also received consultancy from another part of the BSI group for the same management system. Likewise, we do not offer consultancy to clients when they also seek certification to the same management system. Hello everyone and welcome to our webinar, The New World of Construction. We are broadcasting across the US and Canada today and we welcome all attendees and I hope everyone is doing well, keeping safe and enjoying the start of summer. This is Anne-Marie Pizzatelli and I'm the Sector Head of Marketing for the Built Environment at the BSI Group. Today's topic is of great interest as we look at health, safety and well-being in the construction sector. The sector has had some unprecedented challenges, including an aging workforce, increased supply chain material costs, digitalization, poor health and safety, plus COVID-19. So lots to talk about today. I would now like to introduce today's speakers. Kate Field, sorry about that. Kate Field is the global Head of Health, Safety and Wellbeing at BSI. Javier Alcarez is the Managing Principal, National Safety Practice Director at BSI. Please welcome today's speakers, Kate and Javier. Hello guys, how are you doing? Greetings Hi, everyone. Emery. Hi everyone, it's great to be here. Great, great to have you guys here to speak today. Now a little bit about BSI. Our purpose is inspiring trust for a more resilient world. We help to shape and guide innovation through improving and standardizing business processes, products, and services to enable advancement. We are, we are independent and free from any outside influence as all profit is reinvested back into BSI to help us to continue to support and drive further change and innovation. Prior to COVID-19, health and safety was already a key priority for all involved with construction and buildings and infrastructure. This now becomes an even more critical objective. And we'll talk about that today. BSI has a unique enterprise-wide breadth of health, safety and well-being services and solutions. I will speak a bit more about BSI solutions, but for the close of the webinar today. But of course, we've got standards, digital tools, consultancy, certification, product testing, customized audit, training and qualifications, just a full um, solution um, portfolio that we can offer all of our clients. But I'll speak a bit more about that later on today. I would now like to hand over to Kate Field. Lovely. Thank you, Anne-Marie. And yeah, great to see so many uh, on the call today. Um, and hopefully you'll find this really informative. So I'm just going to set the scene. Um, and Anne-Marie alluded to it in uh, her introduction. You know, within the built environment and, and the construction sector, we have seen you know, unprecedented levels of, of change and challenges that come either with that change or other challenges, including, as, as Amory mentioned, things like aging workforce, real challenges with supply chain, and that's on, ongoing, you know, uh, when COVID-19, which has been a, a big challenge for the last 15, 18 months hit, you know, there were supply chain challenges, but that is still impacting the construction sector. Um, you know, the resulting changes in material costs, 
cost and, and that goes on anyway over over time. Um, digitization and opportunities um, around the use of, of technology and you know sadly we are still uh, in a state where the built environment and again particularly the construction sector still has overall um, a, a very poor health safety and well-being record com when compared to um, other industries. So it you know, we need to explore what these challenges are and look at a, a response that creates a culture of trust um, that really focuses on the people because the people are at the heart of organisations. Um, and if we get that right, then the benefit for organisations is that it makes them more resilient. And this was really the inspiration between um, behind this report, the new world of construction. This was a report that BSI um, has written. And if we move on to the next slide, um, it was done in partnership with some key experts from around the world who have real insights and knowledge of, of the sector. So I, I input, um, but we had John Brownstein from, uh, who's based in North America from the BSI consultancy practice. We also had Kathy Seabrook and David Solomon, and they brought together their expertise and insights to look at these challenges that are facing their sector and what some of our opportunities are to address some of those sectors. And it became clear that really there were three core principles that we could focus on to help that transformation. So driving a culture of change you know it, it it is clear if we are going to make improvements on the health particularly on the health safety and well-being performance of the sector we need to change the culture and that means prioritizing people but there's also this opportunity and some potential challenges around the use of, of technology and particularly digitization so these three themes are explored in uh, much more depth in the the report and you'll have um, access to that report. I think some of you have already seen it, so you may be familiar. So what I'm going to, to do today really is, is give you a, a flavour and an update and a summary of these three areas, but I'm really going to focus on kind of the culture and the people piece because that is the key area that will make the biggest difference. So if we move on to the next slide, then th I think a, a good starting point is to have an understanding about resilience. This is something that particularly, you know, in the last 15, 18 months is a word that has become much more common. It is much more at the forefront of organizations' minds. You know, when we have these major disruptions, these major crises, how do we, um, how do we develop and, and stay resilient? And what also happens is it does crises, major disruptions, like this shift attitudes and behaviours and patterns of, of demands and therefore organisations need to be able to discern what's changing and adapt and then shape and, and change to that emerging reality and that often means a rebalancing of priorities and what we, and we see a lot of is during periods of particularly sustained disruption 
organizations pivot from kind of the crisis management to a much more transformational approach looking to the long-term benefits and opportunities particularly around innovation and agility and we've absolutely seen this with the pandemic you know the the first few months those business continuity and pandemic risk management plans kicked in and it was just dealing with the the immediate but I, I heard it termed as you know a lot of approaches to disruption um, are sprints. You know, you deal with a crisis and you get over the crisis and you, and you go back to normal. But with with this pandemic, and I think, you know, there are other disruptions that are, are likely to cause the same similar sorts of approaches is actually we need something that's a more of a marathon approach. There might be the initial disruption, but actually how do we create the framework and the resilience to deal with ongoing disruption and making sure that we seize the opportunities um, that that potentially has as well as dealing with the, the challenges. So resilience is at now is important as you know an organization strategy, cost savings and efficiencies. So if we move on to the next slide, it's probably worth exploring what we mean by organisational um, resilience. And there is a British standard, um, 65000, um, which is best practice on organisational resilience. And it defines organisational resilience as the ability of an organisation to anticipate, prepare for, respond, and adapt to incremental change and sudden disruptions in order to survive and prosper. So I think this is a great definition. It really captures all of these key, key points. You need to try and be identifying potential disruption and prepare for it, and then obviously respond, but also adapt to, you know, again, what the opportunities or challenges may be. And sometimes, as it says in the definition, that might be incremental or it might be sudden. And it's about creating the, the framework and the processes to not only survive, but also prosper when that disruption happens. And BSI has then gone on to develop a model to really help organizations understand what is needed for organizational resilience. And it's made up of three areas, leadership, people, processes, and product. And if we go on to the next slide, we can see how that's broken down. Now, I, sadly, I haven't got enough time to go through this in, in detail. Um, but you can get a sense of it, you know, like all things, you know, it's got to be driven by leadership. You know, they've got to have the right skills. They've got to have the vision and the purpose and then put in, in place the resources, the financial planning to deal with that. But none of that will work without people. You know, leaders are people and the organization needs its people. So actually, you know, people are at the heart of organizational resilience. Then you need the processes around resilience to support it um, and potentially, you know, your product and that that's a service as well as a physical product. You obviously need to understand your market and the competitors, you know, horizon scanning, looking for innovation that's going to make and make and keep you relevant for that resilience. So, you know, there are a number of elements that come together. But people really are at the heart of this. And if we move on to the next slide, 
we can just kind of reflect that quite often and certainly during the pandemic, we see four real phases of disruption and, and therefore organisational resilience that comes through. So when the disruption hits, um, it's about survival. <laughs> you know, it's just about getting through the, the initial disruption. Um, and for, for the pandemic, you know, that was about getting to a, a relative safe, a relatively safe place of working, um, you know, creating an environment to continue to survive, but actually um, creating uh, and overcoming the concerns and uncertainty and the panic that came with concerns about spreading infection um, and dealing with the, the implications of that immediate disruption, you know, there's the sudden restrictions on supply supply chain on movement of people and every all the disruption that that caused then we move into stabilize so that's when you get over after uh, up over the initial shock and you kind of go okay right we kind of get a sense about what's going on and then you you get to a point of trying to find an equilibrium you know the the ground that is still moving under your feet and it's certainly that's that's absolutely the case with um covid19 but you kind of get a sense about the the rhythm of of that change and what are the areas you need to continue to focus on and what we saw was you know as organizations understood you know what they could still continue to do you know from an operational point of view then it was about maintaining you know the the safety the security and and the well-being of the workforce um, and you know finding a way to continue to operate in that space and then we move on to to rebuild and and this is really the the piece that i reflected on at the beginning which is in this resilient mindset, you pivot from kind of this crisis management to the transformational, to the opportunities, to the change that comes through. And that's what happens in the rebuild. You know, you're you're setting a revised course and whether I mean, we use the frame with pandemic, the next normal. I don't think there will be a, a next normal. I think, you know, some of the parameters for, for, for working life and uh, the way we operate will change forever. Um, and, you know, it means that we do have the ability to start to look for opportunities um, rather than this simple kind of survival, which is, you know, survive and stabilise. But then what we get to ideally is resilience. This is where that forward planning starts to come in, where we look to achieve a secure future. Um, you know, the the changes or the ability to flex and move, which is a really important part of um, organisational resilience, becomes embedded into the culture and the DNA of the organisation, which allows us to be um, resi resilient. So I'm going to hand over to Anne-Marie for our first poll to ask you where you think your organisation is on this scale of resilience. Anne-Marie. Thank you, Kate. So um, the poll question is, what phase of disruption is your organization in? And I'll ask um, uh, Jalpa to please launch the poll. Are you in the survive phase, going, getting to a place of relative safety together? Are you in the stabilize phase, maintaining safety, security, and well-being? Have you moved to rebuild, setting a revised course for the next normal or whatever the next is, as Kate said? Or are you in the thrive stage, forward planning to achieve a secure future? So 
Uh, the poll is open. Please, uh, everyone do take part in our poll. As I said, it's a great way to engage and also gain insight about others on the, um, on the webinar today. So I'll give everybody a few seconds to complete the poll. What phase of disruption is your organization in? Survive, stabilize, rebuild, thrive. And I'll close the poll in five seconds. So in five, four, three, two, one. And Jalpa, if you could please share the results. Lovely. Thank you, Anne-Marie, and, and thank you for everyone for participating. Um, okay, so we've got a re we've got an interesting mixed response here. We've got the majority of responses falling in re rebuild, and that feels a about right from what we're hearing from our, our clients. They kind of got over um, uh, the initial shock and, and kind of looking to uh, get on and think about you know the the next normal. But you know there are a lot of organisations um, because of the, the nature of their work or the activities um, that are still in survive and stabilize. So we've got survive at 6% and stabilize at 21%. And we've got 24% actually moving into to thrive. Um, so you have kind of got over that initial shock, got into rebuild and are looking to the future um, and looking for that opportunity to thrive. So that's really interesting and very reflective of, of what we're hearing from our, from our global client base across all sectors. So thank you very much. And if we um, move on to uh, the next slide. <clears throat> um, um. Great, and uh, Jalpa, if you could close the poll and we'll move on to the next slide. Great, lovely, thank you. So I said that, um, you know, although there are kind of three themes that are identified in the report, I was really going to sort of uh, focus on two sort of amalgamated together, which is prioritizing people and creating a, a change culture. And if we move on to the next slide, I think it's worth reflecting on exactly kind of where we are and what has happened during the last 15 to 18 months with the pandemic. And what we've seen is that COVID-19 has created a culture of care that maybe wasn't there before. And what we've seen is in the midst of the pandemic, the corporate world has rediscovered its humanity. Hierarchical barriers, you know, the, the them and us, <laughs> the bosses and everybody else were broken down. You know, we we were Zooming and, and doing Teams meetings with our, our bosses in their in their homes and we met their kids and their dogs and their cats and we, you know, looked at their home decor and they did the same for us. And it really broke down a lot of those hierarchical barriers and it did recreate this sense of, of hum humanity. And and it was a disruption that impacted everyone. So those hierarchical barriers of them and us were replaced with, we're all in this together. And that created a culture of care that quite frankly, as I've said, you know, basically didn't exist really in many organizations before the pandemic. And one of the things that we found is we run a, a report based on our organizational resilience framework that I've just shared with you. Um, and we run a report every year and we go out to um, global business leaders and, and organizations and ask them to basically 
frame themselves against that framework to identify how resilient they are or what their challenges are. And this year's report, the 2021 index report, showed very, very clearly that those organisations that had prioritised their people were the most resilient. They were not only riding that, riding that wave of disruption, um, they were importantly, critically entering that thrive stage, seizing those opportunities to make a strong recovery. And if we move on to the next slide, I think one of the, the challenges that we saw with the pandemic, although it created a, a culture of care within many organisations that hadn't existed, sadly, it wasn't something that was universal. We saw many, many um, stories from around the world um, highlighting cases of workers having to work in very unsafe environments during the pandemic and you know really simple things um, in some sectors about you know not being provided with the right levels of personal protective equipment and actually from the US you may be aware that Gallup run a social series poll it's an ongoing poll um, and uh, the report for last year showed actually the lowest scores um, in the last decade of, of people feeling safe in the workplace and I think, you know, this reflects that we've got a real challenge that, you know, people aren't prioritised. And we see that in, in global statistics, um, you know, sadly, still 2.2 million people, loved ones, don't return to their families at the end of the day. 374 million loved ones are disabled or made ill, some of whom will never be able to work again or will suffer the really tragic impacts on quality of life because of a maybe a permanent form of disability. And this other piece that you might, that's on the screen that you might have seen or maybe not came out a couple of weeks ago. And this is research from the World Health Organization and the International Labor Organization. And they did research that showed very clearly that where people were working long hours, it was literally killing them. It does increase deaths from heart disease and stroke. It was a very clear correlation. And we've got a, another piece of evidence, um, which I think is also really interesting. Another report that BSI sponsors is the Business Continuity Report. And we do this every year. It's a horizon scan looking at what organisations um, have been facing in terms of disruptors. It looks at what has been the biggest disruptors for the last 12 months and then asks organisations to predict what the biggest disruptors will be for the next 12 months. And what's really interesting, you know, the, the pandemic aside, um, is that for the last three years, the top disruptor within the year has been health and safety incidents. But when organisations answer the question about what will be a disruptor for the coming 12 months, health and safety doesn't even make the top 10. <laughs> so here we've got, you know, clear evidence that health and safety performance and disruption is an issue for organisations. And yet they're just not thinking about it. And I call this the corporate blind spot. And the reality is that, you know, profit is the priority um, and people are still often seen as a begrudged profit making commodity. So for 
the culture of care to emerge during the pandemic, we've actually had to see a more important cultural shift start to happen, which if we can embrace it and embed it for the long term has really powerful and exciting benefits for individuals and the organisations they work for. The challenge though is with acknowledging this shift that has happened and to admit a really uncomfortable truth that something was missing before and the thing that was missing was trust. The COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted that organisations simply didn't trust their people. So if we move on to the next slide, let's unpick that a little bit more. I think one of the things that's really interesting, although organisations would never admit to this lack of trust, it's evident in the business challenges that organisations face. You know, restricted growth, poor productivity, ongoing issues with quality, challenges with recruitment and retention, you know, a lack of innovation, this ongoing issue that we're not able to improve performance in terms of health and safety, um, levels of complaints, you know, um, increasing reports of stress and burnout. All of these things are evidence that people aren't prioritised, that that trust is not there. And, you know, it's something that if if we're going to make a change, we need to recognise that. And I think one of the things is that this lack of trust has often been um, dressed up in, you know, plausible sounding business parlance, you know, where organisations set output focused KPIs rather than input or outcome based P, um, KPIs. You know, we talk about reward, reward, reward and bonus packaging um, where we require people to do their timesheet every week, every day to make sure that they're doing their hours. You know, that's that's framed around um, time and, and resource management. You know, a lack of um, uh, allowing people to work flexibly or work from home, you know, was blamed on the fact that, you know, oh, we don't have the IT infrastructure. That's far too difficult and the, the the issue with this approach is it creates an erosion of trust which is like a sea relentlessly hitting a cliff face it's a steady but almost imperceptible erosion that undermines the strength and resilience of the organization so if we move on to the next slide I think one of the things that we can reflect on is what is needed to create this culture of trust and start to change our mindset. And one of the things that organisations look at is, is well-being. But there's a lot of misunderstanding about what well-being is and lots of many, many, many different uh, definitions. But there is a new definition of workplace well-being, which I think actually frames it very well and very accurately. And that's from the new international standard on psychological health and safety risk, ISO 45003. And it defines well-being as the fulfillment of the physical, mental, social and cognitive needs and expectations of a worker related to their work. 
And you can see, you know, it's more than just physical, it's mental, it's social, it's cognitive. But the key piece, and this is something that is consistent across most definitions of well-being, it's about creating the right conditions for fulfillment. And if you do that, if you create the right conditions, you unlock an individual's potential. And in return, you get a much more resilient organisation. But in order to create that fulfillment, you've got to change your culture and create trust. So if we move on to the next slide. One of the things that we see, you know, trust is trust is always there. It's, it's not something that's never there, but it can be eroded, as I've talked about, or misplaced or, or enhanced. But one of the things that we see um, as a way of undermining trust, um, and this is a particular concern for, for the built environment construction sector, um, is around diversity. And actually, you know, a lack of diversity and not, and, and not creating the right culture that is inclusive will undermine this culture of, of trust and any positive culture that you are trying to create. And fundamentally, it can also increase risk um, within an organisation, physical, mental and cognitive risk. And what's really important and, and what's often overlooked is that actually it can reduce innovation. There are many, many studies, really robust evidence base now that shows that uh, the more diverse an organisation, the more innovative it is. So actually, if you don't embrace diversity and create a culture where you can have a, a, a diverse and inclusive workforce, then you are actually going to limit your ability to look and, and move into that thrive stage by looking for those opportunities for innovation. And of course, you know, there are a number of um, statutory requirements um, around diversity and discrimination and inclusion. And if you're not taking the right steps, then you may be open to legal challenges. So this is just really one example. And we touch on this in the report, um, particularly because of the challenges with gender diversity within the sector, um, that it's just worth reflecting on. So if we move on to the next slide. The other thing that we um, have seen, and you can see a quote from the report here, is that the impact of poor psychological health, mental health related illness in the construction industry um, is really significant. Um, and, and this is a, across the board, um, across all, all parts of the, of the world. And, you know, it does impact other sectors, but it's a particular challenge for the construction sector, you know, where you've got a predominantly male workforce that doesn't necessarily talk about the way they're, they're feeling. You have a very macho culture. You have a lot of stigma and misconception perception associated with mental Ill illness and, um, and therefore it you know it's a real issue and psychological um, health and safety and particularly the negative out outputs of that so work-related stress burnout anxiety and, and depression you know have, have been uh, impacting uh, the sector for a number of years but it's clear that again 
part of the positive impact of COVID-19, this culture of care, is it has raised awareness of the need to help and support um, individuals in terms of their mental health, but also address those psychological health and safety risks that arise at work and actually take positive actions to prevent and mitigate them. So if we move on to the next slide, what do we need to do to start to move this change, to create this culture of trust, trust that prioritises people? There are a number of points. The first point is we need collaborative and communicative, emotionally intelligent leadership. We need a diverse, inclusive and ethical workplace relationship, which is based on fairness and respect. We need opportunities for lifelong learning and employability. Again, you know, this an ageing workforce is a challenge for all sectors, but it's a real challenge for um, the built environment of the construction sector. You know, we don't have new talent entering into the workforce. So we've got to create um, the mechanisms to keep the workforce in work and healthy for as long as possible. We need to create a, a fair balance between effort and reward. Um, and we need to ensure that the work and the workplaces are preventing that physical and mental harm and are promoting good physical and psychological health. And we want to create a sense of engagement and inclusion um, within the workplace and particularly the wider community. This is often called social value and that is really import important to a sense of, of well-being. You're, you're okay, that's lovely. We can move on to the next slide. I am conscious of time if that was a, was a hint. <laughs> um, but I think one of the things that we need to need to be aware of is that changing culture takes takes time you know it's not something that happens overnight and one of the things that we've identified is kind of um, a cultural maturity in in this space quite often organizations that are new or going through significant change or mergers and acquisitions are at the emerging stage. At this stage, you're very much focused on survival. Um, you're reactive and compliance focused. You know, you don't have governance and processes in, in place and you, you tend to have this transactional hierarchical leadership. After time, when you become more established, you get those governance processes in place um, and the wider processes to ensure your organisation, your business works effectively. And you start to move to a much more proactive risk-based approach that is focused on creating a positive brand and reputation. And at this stage, you tend to see transformational leadership. And I've just noticed the spelling mistake on that slide. Um, and, and this is where you have leaders that are, you know, creating a vision and a mission for the organisation and for people to, to get behind. And, and accelerating, you know, you, you create this balance in terms of your resilience between being agile, so ability to um, seize the opportunities of change and innovation and being defensive, you know, battening down the hatches, if you like, during periods of disruption. Um, but you find that balance and you create a work environment that allows autonomy and creativity and ultimately the fulfillment, the well-being for individuals and therefore the resilience for the organisation. So if we move on to the next slide, 
one of the things that we see a lot of organizations do to try and prioritize people and, and create a more positive to, uh, culture is to look at workplace wellbeing initiatives or sometimes wellness um, as, as part of that. And, you know, although they tend to vary, what you tend to see are some common themes. So particularly wellness initiatives, what I, I frame as yoga and yoga. So, you know, uh, activities focused on in, in improving physical um, activity um, and improving sort of nutrition um, and food intake. You quite often see mental resilience training. You know, it's, it's, I know we'll train everybody to be resilient rather than deal with the underlying causes within the organization. You see diversity and inclusion committees. You see the, the use and the uptake of employee assistance programs and, and potentially either as part of that or separately, you know, lifestyle guidance around, you know, sleep and debt management and relationship management. You see volunteering and other sort of community engagement activities and opportunities for continuous learning around learning hubs and, and coaching programs. But I think one of the, the challenges that we, we see with workplace wellbeing initiatives is that, you know, during the first year or two, you know, positive effects can be seen, you know, the, I'm not trying to say these things aren't positive, you know, some workers might lose weight or stop smoking, employee engagement scores go up, uh, EAP take up rates improve, you know, you may even see uh, improvements in terms of recruitment and retention. But what we tend to see is over time, the momentum is lost. And there is growing evidence that wellbeing programs do not deliver measurable benefits. Um, and this is, you know, there are many reasons for this, but I think in summary, they are approached as a series of initiatives rather than a cultural change program. And therefore you're always going to limit the success of these programs. If we move on to the next slide. Oh, there. Oh, <laughs> next one. Hi there. there we go. There. there you go. And it brings us to our next poll. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. So um, our next poll, what has been the impact of your workplace well-being programs? Kate just went through a few uh, different types of scenarios with uh, workplace well-being programs. And uh, the responses are don't know, we don't measure it, just started, increased employee engagement scores, Initially positive, now engagement has dropped off. So let's uh, all uh, take part in our poll. What has been the impact of your workplace well-being programs? Again, don't know, we don't measure it, we just started, increased employee engagement scores, or initially positive, now engagement has dropped off. So I'll give everybody a few seconds to complete that poll. And, and then I'll give you five more seconds and we'll share the results and Kate can comment. So in five, four, three, two, and one, and now we'll share the results and let's see what our audience says. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Anne-Marie, and thank you for everyone participating. Okay, so we've got um uh, <laughs> we've got a, a fairly even split uh, really across all areas so we've got 21% don't know which suggests 
you know, simply don't know. We've got 25% that's saying they're not measuring the impact. We have 8% that are saying they haven't started on a workplace wellbeing programme. We have seen, interestingly, as I mentioned, 25% see an increase in employee engagement scores, which is really common. But then we've got what we start to see and evidence is showing us now 21% have said that it was initially positive but now engagement has dropped off so I think that's really reflective of, of the journey uh, and the maturity of workplace well-beings and, and the journey organisations go on so thank you very much if we can go back to the presentation that will be lovely thank you and I'd like to kind of bring all this together um, into a single best practice model. This is a new best practice model that BSI has developed and has launched this week. So congratulations, you are some of the first people in the world to hear about this model. And it's a prioritising people model. It's about creating and what is needed to create that culture of trust, those elements that are needed to create individual fulfillment, that workplace well-being that will then drive organisational resilience. Now, sadly, I haven't got time to go all the way through this model today, but what you can see is that it is framed and, and sort of uh, adapts the needs framework of Maslow's hierarchy. You know, it sets out three stages, your basic needs, then your psychological needs, and then your fulfillment needs, and support that then on the other side of the 16 elements that are needed to create that culture of trust. And it's really important to understand that this model is intended to be applied to achieve significant cultural change. It is not a set of initiatives, tick box exercises to, you know, tick your box for corporate social responsibility. It's about restructuring corporate DNA to create that culture of trust. So if we move on to the next slide, as I said, sadly, I haven't got um, time to take you through the model, but there is a white paper that has been published with the model this week, um, prioritising people white paper. And this goes over and, and goes into more depth a number of the areas that I've discussed today and then goes on to explain the model and in particular those 16 elements that are needed to create fulfilment and deliver that organisational resilience. And when you get your recording and email following today's webinar, you'll get a link um, to access that white paper and find out more. So if we move on to the next slide, I just want to touch really quickly um, and I need to hand over to Javier on the third theme of the report, which is strategic digitization. And if we move on to the next slide, you know, it is clear that there are a number of opportunities that technology and digitization can bring to the sector and to improve and enhance occupational health and safety. You know, the use of smart tech and wearables, you know, robotics and drones, which means that people don't have to work in unsafe environments, um, you know, the use of 3D printing, you know, off-site um, build um, means that there are less people on potentially dangerous, excuse me, construction sites, you know, there are a whole range of opportunities. 
But one of the things that we need to bear in mind, and this is a, a kind of a key part with organizational resilience, really, if we move on to the next side, is while we can explore and look to seize these opportunities, we do need to be aware of what the, the potential implications. And one of the things we're seeing, particularly in the construction sector, is they seize and use some of this technology. Um, and a really good example I saw was utilizing CCTV with uh, AI um, algorithm to identify potential safe working, unsafe working practices. Um, and what was failed to be considered was because that CCTV was then connected into the IT system, they, those CCTVs become um, weak, weak spots um, and therefore bad actors access that CCTV and got access to the system. And cybersecurity is a real concern around technology and digital digitization. But if we move on to the next slide, you know, one of the things, and this is where I'm talking about, is, you know, what does this mean for people? How do we prioritise people while we explore the opportunities for digitization? You know, and we need to remember the basics, making sure that we consult and, and get participation of workforce, we engage with them, we train them on this new technology, we explain it to them, we explain the benefits um, to really overcome the concerns that they, they have. And we need to think about, you know, what are the, not only the health and safety risks that are potentially prevented by this technology, which is the exciting bit about it, but actually what are the risks that some of this technology um, takes or brings into us? And, and nanotechnologies are a really good example. You know, it's, it's a new technology. It's being used in a myriad of ways within the sector, but we still don't really understand the, the full implications from a health and safety point of view of nanotechnology. So we need to take a precautionary approach. And if we move on to the next slide, um, I'll, I'll finish my presentation and ha ha hand over to Javier um, on a final thought, particularly with the digitization and the opportunities that technology brings. I see a, a real sense of FOMO, fear of missing out. You know, everybody's worried about missing this great opportunity and being left behind. But I think one of the things and why there's a dino dinosaur is I want to misquote um, Dr. Malcolm from the Jurassic Park films, if you are familiar with it. And he said something along the lines of, we're so busy thinking about whether or not, whether or whether we can, we don't stop to think whether we should. And I think that's a good point for me to stop and hand over to Javier. Thank you, Kate. So, um, and, and thanks for that excellent information. It really sets up my part of the presentation well, um, because uh, in, in accordance with that poll, um, there is, uh, you, you do see some drop off uh, after some time with participation and interest in your well-being programs. So I'll uh, review some um, some tactical approaches and things to consider um, from a strategic standpoint as well on how you could keep those uh, well-being programs uh, um, active and engaging for your for your workforce. Um, in the U.S. and EMEA and in most APAC countries, uh, uh, all these. Uh, countries are really relaxing their pandemic restrictions are now allowing workers uh, to to come back and however more and more employees are 
really demanding something different from their employers before they return, some type of hybrid work model. Um, in the US, we're even getting closer towards an agreement on an infrastructure plan, um, maybe uh, this week. And, and if passed, it's gonna increase further demands on our already busy, busy construction industry. So before I get started, I'd like to hear from you um, uh, with a poll. Um, Anne-Marie, if you could start that poll for us, please. Yes, thanks, Javier. So our, our final poll question, um, what is the most significant workforce challenge to your organization coming out of the pandemic? Mental health substance abuse, labor shortages and aging workforce, increasing injuries, workplace violence, COVID-19 variants. So if you could please uh, take part in our poll, and uh, I think Jalpa has launched the poll and it's open now. So what is the most significant workforce challenge to your organization coming out of the pandemic? Mental health substance abuse, labor shortages and aging workforce, which uh, Kate touched upon that earlier, increasing injury, injuries, workplace violence, COVID-19 variants. So I'll give people a few more seconds to take part in the poll. Five, four, three, two, one. Let's now uh, close the poll and share the results. Javier? Great. Thank you, Anne-Marie. And um, looks like the results are pretty well spread across several uh, areas there. Um, with the exception of workplace violence, um, uh, heavily, more heavily weighted on labor shortages and aging workforce. So um, not a surprise here. Um, uh, you know, all of these are, are a great concern to construction and in, in all industries, really. Um, and they're shared by uh, many of our organizations today. The good news is that starting a well-being program or improving on your existing one will help really help to address many of the workforce challenges listed in this poll and, and that Kate talked about earlier. Next slide, please. So where should you start? Um, First off, you can't have an effective well-being program without having a solid health and safety program. Kate said this earlier with the prioritizing people model, a safe and healthy workplace is really fundamental to everything uh, um, that you should be thinking about here. So if you don't have that, start there. But how do you build on your health and safety program to make it a true health, safety, and well-being program? We'll start by becoming your organization's expert on well-being. Educate yourself further on the subject. There are a lot of good resources available. Uh, Kate mentioned the 45003 standard, which is out. Um, NIOSH, which is a branch of the CDC, has their Total Worker Health Initiative. The WHO, or World Health Organization, has a lot of good information. The Harvard University Center of Wellness, they have uh, some excellent information on this topic as well. Uh, I have a list of some additional resources that I'll share with you at the end of the presentation but educate yourself and, uh, and, and what you're gonna quickly learn as this happens is uh, that effective well-being programs consist of much more than just pointing your employees to your EAP program. But don't go on this journey alone. Identify your organization's co-champions for well-being. Help to educate them on well-being if needed or, or even learn from them. And they don't necessarily have to be in the safety or HR uh, departments. Your co-champions can be from really any department in your organization um, and, and also hold any position. They don't have to be managers either. Together, educate yourself 
um, but also educate your leadership on the benefits of building your health well-being program. You may have to speak in their tongue when you're speaking to leadership and build a business case showing milestones and return on investment, but I think it'll help you get their commitment, even help find your executive champion or, or sponsor on this. This is, I think, a, a key step for you. Then form a committee of stakeholders with uh, really equal representation of employees and managers as well. Um, and look at uh, folks from different departments. Then get to know your workforce. What well-being initiatives would really benefit uh, them? And you know, if your program does, doesn't benefit or interest your coworkers or workers, you're gonna see that drop in participation that we saw earlier in the poll. Also benchmark other best-in-class organizations. It's a good way to get ideas and then create a vision and roadmap for what your well-being program will look like. But also remember to reference that strong culture of trust in your vision that we talked about earlier. And update your leadership and coworkers with your progress and ask for their feedback. Next slide, please. So this feedback is one of the biggest weaknesses that well-being programs um, have today. And it's, and it's that, that uh, employers really don't actively solicit feedback. Um, they're not getting to know their employees. So how can you improve on your well-being program? Really at any stage of its maturity, make sure you regularly engage with your workforce early and often. And there's no one prescriptive approach to doing this. Certainly use the forms of communication that are already working well for your organization, but also think outside the box and be creative. But the most important thing about communication is to be honest and transparent, particularly when it comes to those changes or disruptions to your business that can affect your workforce. This will really help you building that culture of, uh, or build that culture of trust. Also look at forming partnerships to improve your health and safety and well-being programs. They can, these can be an internal or external. Um, perhaps you can use other work sites or facilities to join you on this journey. Um, even use uh, expert consultants that could guide you through the, through the program and, and you know, build those improvements. There are also uh, groups and associations that focus on many areas of wellness and offer free services and, and tools as well. Optimize your health and safety program. So one surefire way of improving the well-being of your workforce is to improve on your existing health and safety programs. For example, many organizations promote that they're safety first, but does the business culture truly promote it? So if your top management uh, is not tracking and speaking to safety KPIs along with other business KPIs on a regular basis, try to change this. This is a way that you can drive health and safety program improvements in your organization. Leverage technology. Uh, Kate touched on this earlier, but use it to engage your workforce to promote new campaigns around well-being. Your company AP programs can provide employees access to some amazing online uh, tools and mobile content, but they're rarely used or accessed by employees. So provide them demonstrations, demos of these uh, tools. You could use them during your toolbox talks and trainings. And, um, and there are also a ton of free mobile apps 
that you could look into on wellness. Consider those as well. One of my colleagues um, just showed me a super simple mobile app that they actually built internally. They called it the How Was Your Day app. Um, they push it daily uh, uh, as a survey and essentially consists of a happy face, a medium face, and a, a sad face. And what they do is they ask their employees to select the face that most reflects their experience for the day. It, uh, it was targeted at a smaller group of employees in a high stress, higher risk uh, uh, group that was injury prone. So, um, but they did it to keep a pulse on how they were doing. And, and this idea can certainly be expanded to the greater workforce. And then lastly, make it fun. Build goals and objectives with incentives on participating in your health, safety, and well-being initiatives. Even make it competitive by creating teams or uh, pitting department versus department, particularly for health promotion campaigns like exercise or philanthropy. Next slide. And don't forget why your health and safety programs are so important to your organization. It's becoming very clear that coming out of the pandemic, people are looking for more than just a paycheck. They want more meaningful work. They want to work for an organization that will invest in them and that they can trust. And study after study show that a safe and well workforce is also a happy workforce, which performs at a higher level. And this translates to a more resilient organization, which is good for both your business and your customers. Next slide. And I'll just wrap up with uh, pointing out to some resources that, uh, that will be available to you, a link to our white paper that Kate mentioned earlier, some infographics, um, and the next slide has some links uh, from some of the organizations that I mentioned earlier as well. So with that, uh, I wanna thank you for your time and turn it back over to Anne-Marie. Thank you, Javier. Uh, just a bit about BSI Solutions, and I'm cognizant of the fact that we're that we're running late, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about BSI Solutions. We have our training classes that are virtual now, with hopefully face-to-face -face coming in the fall for ISO 45001, 45003, as well as BIM classes specifically for the construction and built environment sector. We offer certification for ISO 45001, as well as other standards. We have product certification, including ISO 19650 BIM verification and kite mark. And of course, we've got our consulting services as well for EHS construction. If you're interested in any of the BSI solutions, please indicate this on the post-event survey, which will pop up as soon as the webinar is finished. I'm gonna skip over a couple of slides. Everybody will be getting um, an email, a follow-up email with a link to um, the report and uh, to the maturity test if you want to engage in those that would be fantastic there are three webinars coming up in July on ISO 45003 uh, introducing ISO 45003 psychological health and safety at work so those um, webinars will be on our website and all participants today will receive an invitation to these uh, webinars I wanted to get quickly to some Q&A we may only have time for a couple of questions but let's see what we can get through Kate we have a question that's come in, how do you recommend adopting a hybrid and or flexible working uh, arrangement or framework in the construction industry? And that one's for Kate. 
Okay, that that's great. And I I think one of the things that we've seen again, sort of with a the a very traditional sort of I don't know if I'm bold male orientated um, workforce is that the perception is that you can't necessarily have flexible and hybrid working. But there's some really good studies going on to explore actually how this is possible, even on construction sites. Um, and it is feasible, you know, it just takes talking to your people about what would work and what they are looking for. I think this is this is an area that is so often overlooked um, with health, safety and well-being. You know, your your people understand what the challenges are and they understand what the opportunities and they can be really great at looking at solutions. But some of the things that we've seen coming through is flexible start and finish times. Um, a really good study um, here in the UK, actually, I was reading about this week where I, I mentioned this in, in part of my presentation where we have, you know, performance indicators, KPIs that are, are very much focused on um, outputs. But they, uh, an, an initiative here with one of the large construction organisations is, is looking at an outcome based model. So looking at what needs to be done um, over, over the build um, and empowering the team to come up with the solution and the most effective way of delivering that and what that has done is not only drive efficiencies in the process and ensure that the work is is delivered on time but it's also allowed much more flexibility in terms of working hours so you know there might be times when the team have worked slightly longer but they've that's been balanced by then having time back and you know there's a there's a great quote by one of the participants um, on that you know and he's so excited because he said you know I've been able to go and pick my kids up from school um, and I think you know that's that's the key piece and and of course you know if you get that reaction then you you create a, a loyalty and you create this additional discretionary effort people will go that little bit further for your organization if they think you're looking after if they think you're they are being looked after thanks Anne-Marie and I'm happy to share that link if anybody wants more on it <laughs> sorry great I think we've gone over time um, sorry I we can't get to the rest of the questions uh, but I want to thank everyone uh, for attending today's webinar and thank you to our speakers, Kate and Javier. All participants today will receive a link to the recording of this webinar, as well as links to our new report, The New World of Construction, the OHS Maturity Quiz, plus our Prioritizing People white paper. However, in order to get this great information, please complete the post-event survey, which will pop up as soon as this webinar is finished. If you have any questions regarding BSI consulting, training, or certification solutions, please indicate that on the survey and we will get back to you right away. Once again, thank you to our speakers. Thank you all for attending and have a great day, everyone. Bye-bye.